You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. Let's turn to our scripture reading this morning. 1 Samuel 15, verse 10, to chapter 16, verse 5. Just to set the historical context, we're in the middle of the reign of King Saul. And Saul is on the decline. Then the word of the Lord came to Samuel, I am grieved that I have made Saul king, because he has turned away from me and has not carried out my instructions. Samuel was troubled, and he cried out to the Lord all that night. Early in the morning, Samuel got up and went to meet Saul, but he was told Saul has gone to Carmel. There he has set up a monument in his own honor and has turned and gone on down to Gilgal. And Samuel reached him. Saul said, The Lord bless you. I have carried out the Lord's instructions. But Samuel said, What then is this bleeding of sheep in my ears? What is this lowing of cattle that I hear? Saul answered, The soldiers brought them from the Amalekites. They spared the best of the sheep and cattle to sacrifice to the Lord your God. But we totally destroyed the rest. Stop, Samuel said to Saul. Let me tell you what the Lord said to me last night. Tell me, Saul replied. Samuel said, Although you were once small in your own eyes, did you not become the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel, and he sent you on a mission saying, Go and completely destroy those wicked people, the Amalekites. Make war on them until you have wiped them out. Why did you not obey the Lord? Why did you pounce on the plunder and do evil in the eyes of the Lord? But I did obey the Lord, Saul said. I went on the mission the Lord assigned me. I completely destroyed the Amalekites and brought back Agag, their king. The soldiers took sheep and cattle from the plunder, the best of what was devoted to God, in order to sacrifice them to the Lord your God at Gilgal. But Samuel replied, Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the voice of the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed is better than the fat of rams. For rebellion is like the sin of divination, and arrogance like the evil of idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you as king. And Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned. I have violated the Lord's command and your instructions. I was afraid of the people, and so I gave in to them. Now I beg you, forgive my sin and come back with me so that I may worship the Lord. But Samuel said to him, I will not go back with you. You have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you as king over Israel. As Samuel turned to leave, Saul caught hold of the hem of his robe and it tore. Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and has given it to one of your neighbors, to one better than you. He who is the glory of Israel does not lie or change his mind, for he is not a man that he should change his mind. Saul replied, I have sinned. 
But please honor me before the elders of my people and before Israel. Come back with me so that I may worship the Lord your God. So Samuel went back with Saul, and Saul worshipped the Lord. And Samuel said, Bring me Agag, king of the Amalekites. Agag came to him confidently, thinking, Surely the bitterness of death is past. But Samuel said, As your sword has made women childless, so will your mother be childless among women. And Samuel put Agag to death before the Lord at Gilgal. Then Samuel left for Ramah, but Saul went up to his home in Gibeah of Saul. Until the day Samuel died, he did not go to see Saul again, though Samuel mourned for him. And the Lord was grieved that he had made Saul king over Israel. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul, since I have rejected him as king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I am sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I have chosen one of his sons to be king. But Samuel said, How can I go? Saul will hear about it and kill me. The Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what to do. You are to anoint for me the one I indicate. Samuel did what the Lord said. When he arrived at Bethlehem, the elders of the town trembled when they met him. They asked, Do you come in peace? Samuel replied, Yes, in peace. I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come to the sacrifice with me. Then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. The text for the sermon this morning is 1 Samuel 16, verses 6 to 13. Carrying on from where we just left off a moment ago. When they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and had him pass in front of Samuel. But Samuel said, the Lord has not chosen this one either. Jesse then had Shammah pass by. But Samuel said, nor has the Lord chosen this one. Jesse had seven of his sons pass before Samuel But Samuel said to him, the Lord has not chosen these. So he asked Jesse, are these all the sons you have? There is still the youngest, Jesse answered, but he is tending the sheep. Samuel said, send for him. We will not sit down until he arrives. So he sent and had him brought in. He was ruddy with a fine appearance and handsome features. And the Lord said, Rise and anoint him. He is the one. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the Spirit of the Lord came upon David in power. Samuel then went to Ramah. Beloved congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, over the next few weeks, we're going to be looking at the life of David. And we're not going to be able to cover everything, 
But I do hope to cover some of the most important events and some of the most important passages. And as we do this, we'll see again how the story of our redemption unfolds in Scripture. And we'll also see how all of Scripture points us to Christ and to the Gospel. And so we'll also be encouraged again to continue fixing our eyes on Him. By the way, this doesn't mean that the series on Mark is over. I do plan to come back to that a little bit later on. Well, the passage we're beginning with this morning, as we begin considering the life of David, this passage involves rejection. Perhaps you noticed that word repeated several times. At some point or other in our lives, many of us have experienced that. Perhaps it was the job that you wanted so badly. Or in today's economic climate, maybe it was the job you lost, the job you were laid off from. Maybe you experienced rejection from a boyfriend or girlfriend who dumped you. Maybe the in-crowd, the cool people who wanted nothing to do with you and who saw you as the ultimate loser. And you can add your own experiences, I'm sure. Rejection happens all the time to many people. And rejection is never easy to take, is it? 1 Samuel chapter 15 describes to us how Saul was rejected from being king over Israel. And Saul didn't take this too well. He didn't accept it. And why was Saul rejected? Because he stubbornly, he proudly rejected the word of God. Saul had his own problems with rejection. He simply didn't want to listen to what God had to say. And so God rejected him. Samuel said to him in verse 26, You have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. And not only that, but Saul was told that the kingdom had been torn from him and had been given to someone else. Not his son Jonathan, but instead one of his neighbors. One better than him. Who could that person be? Well, I think we know the answer. We find that out in chapter 16 and in our text. And So this morning I preached to you God's word with this theme, God chooses His anointed in His way. And we'll see that in His choosing, He looks at the heart, He uses the lowly, and then finally He gives strength with His Spirit. Now our text speaks about two things. In the first place, we read about God choosing someone. When all those sons of Jesse come in front of Samuel, Samuel says, the Lord has not chosen this one. The second thing the passage talks about is God's anointed. God is choosing His anointed. That's why when the first son of Jesse, Eliab, comes in front of Samuel, Samuel says, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. Of course, to be anointed, you know what that means? That means that you have olive oil poured on your head. That would symbolize that you had been set aside by God for a special task. Usually, prophets, priests, and kings would be given their offices or you could say their tasks, their callings, by anointing, anointing with olive oil. And in this case, it's clear that God is looking for a man to anoint as king, someone to replace Saul. God is looking for his Messiah. 
Now remember, that's what Messiah actually means. Messiah means the one anointed by God. And we usually use the name Messiah to refer in a special sense to the Lord Jesus. We speak about him as the Messiah. In fact, Christ, the word Christ is the the word in Greek for the Hebrew word Messiah. But Messiah can also refer in the scriptures to someone like David who has been anointed by God. And so God is choosing his Messiah, his anointed one. Specifically, he's choosing the king who would rule over Israel. And the way he does that is very unique, very special. If we were going to choose a king for ourselves, probably we wouldn't do it the way that God does it here. When there are elections in Canada or the U.S., quite often the people who get in who are elected, they're the ones who can talk the best. They look the best in front of TV cameras. It's all about charisma. Usually, elections in our culture are not really about who has the best campaign platform. It's mostly about appearance rather than about substance. However, our text tells us that God looks at things differently when He chooses His anointed. Eliab, the oldest son of Jesse, came in front of Samuel as the sacrifice was about to start. And Samuel took one look at him and figured that this must be for sure the man whom God wants to be king. Like Saul, he was tall and he was good looking. We can assume that from God's response to Samuel in verse 7. And God says to Samuel, don't look at those things. I don't care that he's the oldest. I don't care that he's the best looking or the tallest. I have rejected him. Samuel had it all wrong. He thought that appearances would have mattered, would have been important, would have been the priority. But he finds out there in verse 7 that God's standards are not the same as those of people. People look at the outward appearance. People are not God. They can't look at a person and see what lives deep inside there. They can't see whether a person does a good deed because he loves that other person or because he's motivated by pride, because he wants everybody else to see how good he is. But people often also don't want to look at anything other than the outward appearance. Because isn't it true that it's, it's a lot easier to assess somebody else just by looking at what you see rather than talking to that person, digging a bit, trying to find out a bit more about what makes that person tick? By nature, we're uncharitable, aren't we? Left to ourselves, apart from God's sanctifying work, apart from the work of the Holy Spirit in us, We don't try to think the best of other people. More often, the worst. And sometimes we, even though we don't want to admit it, we even get a little bit of pleasure from thinking the worst. And then spreading it around and and dwelling on it incessantly. Not the way we are, by nature. Human beings are creatures, so they're limited in how they can look at somebody else. But we're also sinners. 
And our sinfulness often means that we look at the outward appearance only and then we do that in an unloving and uncharitable way. We learn from our text that God is different. God looks at the heart. He knows what lives inside each and every person. He knew where the heart of Saul was. He knew that Saul had become rebellious, that he had become consumed with pride. But he also knew where the heart of David was. He knew that his Holy Spirit had been at work in David's life, producing fruits of faith and repentance. We know from elsewhere in the Bible, and we're going to see it as we, as we deal with the life of David, we know that David was a man of faith who believed God's promises, who trusted God. Look only at the next chapter, what happens with Goliath, a passage we're going to look at next week, how David killed Goliath. He did that in faith, trusting God. But that wasn't because David himself was so great. God had given him that strong faith. And so when God says that he looks at the heart... It means that he looks for his own work. He doesn't look to see how good someone is on their own. Rather, he looks to see whether his Holy Spirit has been working in that person's life. Working to give them faith. And then also the fruits of faith. God looks to the heart and not to outward appearances when he chooses his anointed here. Now, maybe you're wondering then why the text tells us what David looked like. It tells us that David was ruddy, with a fine appearance, and handsome features. The text is telling us that he was a good-looking man. He may not have been tall, but he was still handsome. Ruddy means that he had red hair. David had red hair, and he had a reddish complexion. That was a feature considered to be particularly attractive among the Jews in Bible times. Well, the explanation is that people considered it important. People considered it important for their king to be a handsome and respectable-looking man. They didn't want an ugly king. God knew that when he chose David. But that wasn't the most important thing for God. God, first of all, looked to his heart, and God saw that it was a heart that loved him. The fact that David was good-looking, as far as God was concerned, it was gravy. It was an extra to help the people, the people to love David and to listen to him. God's Messiah not only had a right heart, but he also had the good looks so he could be an effective king. But of course, there is another Messiah spoken of in the Bible, the Lord Jesus Christ. He was also anointed by God to be king. And in some ways, he was the same, but better than David. And in other ways, he was really quite different. He was the same in that he was also a man after God's own heart. His heart was right with God, but totally so. David was still a sinner, and in the next few weeks we'll see that. David did many terrible things, and you can read all about them in the Bible. But the Lord Jesus was always perfect. 
He never failed to keep God's commandments. He was perfect in a way that his father David never could be. Saul had failed. But David also had his failures. Christ would never fail. He never did fail. And his obedience is imputed to people who do fail. His obedience is imputed to you and to me, to to all of us. There are also other ways in which Christ was different than David. David, as I just mentioned a moment ago, was handsome and good-looking. We read in Isaiah 53 that the Lord Jesus, quote, had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. There was nothing special about the way that the Lord Jesus looked that would make us think that he is a king. That we should respect him as a king because of the way he looks. As part of his humiliation, the Savior did not look the part. That was because it was God's plan for him to be rejected. For him to be rejected. And to be despised by men. So that he would be hung on the cross for us. And in our place. Dying for our sins. If he had been good looking, perhaps the people might not have been so eager to put him to death. Maybe, but... We don't know. But he did suffer. And he died. And why? So that God would never reject us. When we believe in the Lord Jesus, resting and trusting in him, then the Lord God looks at our hearts and he sees what he placed there. He sees the faith that he has worked with his spirit. And he accepts us. Because of our union with Christ, he looks at our hearts and he sees the heart of his own son. Isn't that amazing? That's good news, isn't it? Because of what the Lord Jesus did for us, we can be on friendly terms with God. We never have to worry about being rejected by God. We can be rejected by all kinds of people. There can be all kinds of instances of rejection in our lives, but we will never be rejected by God. Believing in Jesus Christ. Because of Christ, we are truly men and women after God's own heart. Referring back to the Old Testament, Paul wrote in Romans 15.4, For everything that was written in the past was written to teach us, So that through endurance and the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. And we see this teaching character of our text in the fact that in the Hebrew Old Testament, 1 Samuel was categorized as a prophetic book. Now many of our Bibles, if you have the books of the Bible divided up according to categories... Most of the time, 1 Samuel is considered to be an historical book. But for the Jews, they always regarded it as prophetic. That's not to say they didn't regard it as history, as telling what really happened. But for them, its character was mainly prophetic. Prophetic means that it's meant to teach us. 
that it's meant to transform our lives. That's what Old Testament prophecy was all about. Teaching and transformation. This passage points us to Christ, our Savior, and our union with Him through faith worked by the Holy Spirit. You could say that it refers to the indicative of the gospel. What Christ has done. But it also goes beyond that to teach us our thankful response to the gospel. Our text teaches those in Christ that we will be charitable and loving towards those around us. We want to get beyond appearances and see God's work in our brothers and sisters. Though we're limited by being people, with the Holy Spirit we can see God's work changing and transforming not only our own hearts and lives, but also the hearts and lives of other people. Why? Because what's in the heart can be exposed. If I speak or if I act honestly, I can tell you, I can show you what's in my heart. I can tell or show you what only God and I know about what lives in me. But if I tell you, whether you believe it or not, that's a matter of living out of your union with Christ. Samuel now has all the seven sons of Jesse parade in front of him. And with every single one of them, the answer is the same. Neither has the Lord chosen this one. I hear that, seven sons. It sounds like a good round number, a biblical number. Seven sons. But what if there was one more? So Samuel asked Jesse, are these all of them? And you can imagine Jesse standing there being a little bit embarrassed. Well, you know, they're still the youngest, but he's out with the sheep in the pasture. You wouldn't be interested in him. After all, he's the youngest. And for all this, it appears that Samuel had told Jesse about his intentions. At the very least, it was clear that one of Jesse's sons was being selected for some kind of important task for God. It wouldn't be for a priest, because Jesse and his family come from the tribe of Judah. Priests come from the tribe of Levi. Very few prophets were anointed, so... Likely, it wouldn't have been for that. The conclusion could have been obvious. God was looking for a king, a new king, to replace Saul, who was on the decline, spiraling downward. And Jesse sloughs Samuel off. You wouldn't want my youngest son to be the king of Israel. That would be ridiculous. Even right now, he's out with the sheep. He's doing dirty work. But Samuel is insistent. You have to call him in. We're not going to sit down and have the sacrificial meal until he gets here. In other words, you better go get him right now. We're going to be here all day. And so Jesse relents and has David brought in. And then it's right away clear that this is the one whom God wants to be king. The youngest son of Jesse. A shepherd. Someone 
who is involved with animals that don't always smell very nice. This is going to be the king of Israel? Hardly seems possible. But yet this was God's choice. It happens more often that this is the way that God works. When he makes his choice, he uses the lowly. You can look back to the way that Saul was chosen king in 1 Samuel 9. When Samuel tells Saul that he is going to be king, Saul answers, But am I not a Benjamite from the smallest tribe of Israel? And is not my clan the least of all the clans of the tribe of Benjamin? I'm the small of the small. And so Saul also had humble beginnings. Although, of course, later on this turned out in a wrong way. And so with our text, we find something old, but we also find something new. The old thing is that God continues to use the humble and lowly, the youngest son who's a shepherd boy. The new thing is that the kingship is passing from the tribe of Benjamin over to the tribe of Judah. That's the way things were destined to happen, according to the words of Jacob in Genesis 49. Jacob prophesied, the scepter will not depart from Judah until he comes to whom it belongs. Now the tribe of Judah is being handed the ruler's staff, the scepter. And it's being done in God's way. God chooses his anointed from the lowly. David begins off as a shepherd boy, and it's only later in his life that he becomes this glorious king. The youngest son of Jesse will be exalted over all of his brothers. That's how it was with the Messiah. God's anointed in our text. Of course, many years later, another king would be born of the tribe of Judah. That king was born in a manger among the animals. Smelly animals, again. He wasn't born in a palace. And as soon as he was born, people wanted to kill him. His whole life was one of suffering and being hounded by his enemies, including Satan himself. He died in a humiliating way, like, like a common criminal, hanging on a cross. The most shameful way that anyone could die at that time. But the wonderful thing is that God also exalted this king, lifted him up. He rose from the dead and ascended into heaven. The glorified Christ now sits at God's right hand, ruling over heaven and earth. He had lowly beginnings, but now he reigns in glory as the King of kings and Lord of lords. We read in Philippians 2, 8-9, we're also going to sing those words later on in hymn 19, that he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. His name is Jesus, our Lord Jesus. So you see, that's how God works. Loved ones, God doesn't take those who think highly of themselves and who think that God should make much of them too. 
God isn't agreeable with those who are high and mighty in their own eyes, their own estimation. The theology of glory. That's what we're talking about here. Those who think themselves to be high and mighty, who think that being a Christian is a way to have glory and wealth and honor and blessing and riches in this life. Theology of glory. The world has a copyright on the theology of glory. It's off limits for God. And He won't go there. Won't have anything to do with it in this world. We read about a different kind of theology, a theology of the cross in 1 Corinthians one twenty-seven. A theology of the cross. God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. That goes for the anointing of David as king. And we see it illustrated in Christ's kingship. But it's also something that has to be for us who share in Christ's anointing. Who have union with Christ through faith. Like David. And more importantly, like David's great son, we need an attitude of faith and submission. That's sometimes tough for us to learn. Especially if you've been a Christian for many, many years. Hardly anyone wants to admit that they still have much to learn. That there's still progress to be made. That's why the book of Proverbs tells us, Instruct a wise man and he will be wiser still. Teach a righteous man and he will add to his learning. Being teachable and being open to correction is an essential part of being humble and lowly. We have to realize that there's always room for growth in the life of a Christian. Doesn't Scripture say, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. That's James 4, verse 6. That's why God rejected Saul and chose David. He looked into David's heart and saw a heart with faith and humility. He wants to see the same thing in our hearts. But as I said earlier, it's not like this comes out of ourselves apart from God. After the Lord had commanded him to do so, Samuel took his olive oil and poured it on the head of David. And we're not told whether David realized the importance or meaning of what was happening. The focus here is not on what David felt at this moment. The text say, the text does say rather, that this happened in the presence of all of his brothers. They all saw it. And it appears that they knew what was happening. And from the next chapter, it appears that they also had a hard time accepting it. They thought David was arrogant and conceited. They were probably jealous because he was chosen to be king instead of them. So David wouldn't have had an easy time. His brothers were nasty to him. Further, it wasn't exactly clear how he was going to become the king of Israel. Just because he was anointed at this moment doesn't mean that he's automatically on the throne. 
Saul wasn't going to give up the throne, wasn't going to leave the palace anytime soon. David had to be patient and wait. And he was. He could be. Because when God chose him to be the king, he also blessed him in a special way with the Holy Spirit. That's what it says in verse 13 of our text. And from that day on, the Spirit of the Lord came upon David in power. Now don't misunderstand that. That doesn't mean that David didn't have the Holy Spirit working in him before this. It's quite clear that God had been working with David, and and God does that through his Holy Spirit. No one can have faith in God, trust in Him. No one can believe in God's promises. No one can believe in Christ apart from the work of the Holy Spirit. What our text means is that God gave David the strength of His Spirit for a special calling, preparing him to be the King of Israel. We should also notice that it says, from that day on. That tells us that the Holy Spirit was with David in this special way permanently. It wasn't just temporarily, as happened with Saul, as happened with Samson. The Holy Spirit stayed with David from this point on and gave him strength. David needed this strength because there was much suffering ahead of him. There was much waiting ahead of him. He had to walk the path of suffering. Saul tried to kill David many times. David was hunted down like a wild animal. He had to hide in caves and run like a fugitive. It wasn't easy for him. But he had been chosen to be king. He was promised a throne. And God would keep his promise. He gave David the strength to wait for that throne, to travel through suffering to glory. And the same Holy Spirit did the same work in David's great son, the one to whom David looked forward to. Through 33 years of suffering and humiliation, the Lord Jesus patiently went about the work His Father had given Him to do. And at the end of it all, He was given a throne in heaven. And Christians have also been promised a throne with the Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible promises us that we too one day shall reign with King Jesus. That's what we read in 2 Timothy 2 verse 12. If we endure, we will also reign with Him. That's what we have to look forward to. But it lays at the end of the road. And that road that leads there is not paved with gold and silver. It's not a a, a freeway. It's a rough road filled with potholes. Sometimes God brings difficulties into our lives that challenge our faith in the Lord Jesus. Sometimes there's mockery. People make fun of you. 
Because you're a Christian and you want to live like it. Sometimes even your family, if they aren't believers or if they aren't really serious about their faith, they can make it hard on you. But when that happens, loved ones, be assured that God gives strength through His Holy Spirit. Because just like David, we have the Holy Spirit in a very special way. From Pentecost onward, He has been poured out on God's people. Poured out to give them the strength for the calling that God has given them. Through the fulfillment of Christ's promises, believers always have the special strength of the Holy Spirit, just like David did. And so even when the narrow road to the throne is rough, we can trust that the Spirit of our Lord Jesus Christ will guard us and keep us safe on the road. You can think of those beautiful words from God to His people. In Isaiah 43, 1-3, God said, Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have summoned you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And when you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. It's Isaiah 43, 1-3. Loved ones, those are beautiful promises. Promises that are for you. Promises that are yes and amen in Jesus Christ. And so you can see that God's ways are not our ways. God is God. And He has the strength and He has the power to keep us safe. He has a hand of power and a heart of love. If it was left up to us, God said, well, let's see how you can do, how you do on your own we'd be in the ditch beside the road and there would be nobody strong enough to pull us out. But God gives strength to stay on the road to glory, even as that road travels through suffering and hardship. He gives that strength to those whose lives have been transformed by His sovereign grace and by His mercy. He gives that to those who are in union with Christ by faith. He gives it to the lowly. He gives it to those who know they need His strength. That they are nothing apart from God. And they know how much they need Him. They depend on Him. He has mercy upon those who humble themselves before Him in true faith and repentance. Those who hate their sins and desire to fight against them. God looks into those humble hearts and He is there for them. That's the way God worked when He chose David to be king. That's the way God worked when He gave His one and only Son to die for sinners. And that's the way God works today for us. Amen. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we give thanks for a Savior who traveled the road of suffering and humiliation for us. We're grateful for His death in our place. We praise You for Jesus Christ, our great King, risen, ascended, and sitting in glory at Your right hand. Please help us with Your Word and Spirit to continue fixing our eyes on Him. 
Please give us more grace so that we also live out of our union with Christ. Help us to humble ourselves before you and before one another and to bear our cross and deny ourselves. We pray that you would soon bring us all to glory in your presence. Please hear us in Christ our Lord and Savior, the great Son of David. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.